We're going to finish this morning our three-part series on being all of Christ in all of life for all the world. And as we consider this, we consider it in light of our mission as we've been sharing about and we'll be sharing more about at our, our meeting this afternoon that we just want to encourage you to be that. But as we consider our mission as a church, it really is important to think about our motivation. And so why does God call us to abide in Christ? And why does God command us to make disciples of all nations? Is it because he needs relationship with people or that he needs our service? At the end of the day, why are we to be all of Christ in all of life for all the world? Is it because there is some reason and some purpose that God has that is outside of our understanding? Is it because God wants moral people in the world? Is it because God wants... Love as opposed to defeat and hate? Well, the truth is, is that for many of us, our answer may be that God loves us, and that's one of the reasons that we're to be all of Christ and all of life for all the world, and He's commanded it of us, and that's a good reason. However, the lasting discipleship isn't based solely on the fact that God loves us and He's commanded us to it, but lasting discipleship is a direct result of the known glory of God and the glory of God being known. So let's go ahead and stand this morning as we look at Acts. We're going to be in Acts this morning, and we're going to look at an example of what it means for all the world now, for most of us, when we think of that phrase, we think of it as missional, and we should. But missional means global. Global means local and foreign. Everywhere, that's what it means. That wherever we go, that God's glory be known. And we're going to see an example of Paul demonstrating this. An example of being for all the world, all of Christ, and all of life. So let's read this together, starting in verse 16 of chapter 17, and we're going to go through verse 34. This is what it says. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those happened with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring... 
We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of God or of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has, been, has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others says, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Arabigite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. You may be seated. The truth about God's glory is this that God's glory, known, initiates and compels us to be disciples and make disciples. God's glory known initiates and compels us to be disciples and make disciples. It's glory be and glory make. In our own strength, and if God is about us, these things will cease. But the truth is, is that God is desiring to make his glory known. Now, Paul is there in Athens. Athens is the, what was once the center of culture. It, it actually is a remnant of itself, but it is actually considered kind of like the Oxford and Cambridge. So where Oxford and Cambridge years ago was this booming place, it's still thought of as a, a great and wonderful intellectual university place and town, city. But the truth is, is that Its, its best days, in essence, are behind it. Athens was kind of in the same place. It was considered a place of culture, a place of, of art. It was also a place of where people were considered thinkers and intellectuals resided. It no longer necessarily had the same preeminence that it once had, but it still had a reputation as being this place where people came for pleasure and for intellect it had the very best of what the world had to offer. And so Paul enters into the town and as he walks in, or into the city, and as he walks into the city, it says that as he saw the city was full of idols, his spirit was provoked. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about all of Christ, that we needed to be abiding in Christ, that that's where things begin in terms of of walking things out. And we talked about that as we abide in Christ, our heart begins to align with the things of God. In fact, as we looked at that passage together, one of the things that we found in John 15 was that there was this answered prayer. This answered prayer that came from abiding in the vine. And we talked about the fact that the reason that occurred is because no longer were we asking for things of ourselves but we began asking for the things that were the heart of God. In the same way, Paul's heart is aligned with God. It's a living example of a man who is abiding in Christ. And Paul is provoked because God is provoked. Paul's provocation is a direct result of the provocation of God, that God is offended by idols. And so his spirit is pricked. Now this word here that says here that he was provoked is actually probably too weak. The, the word, the better translation is that he was enraged. He was incensed. That when he looked around and saw this worship of many gods, that he was offended for God, that God's glory was being robbed away by the glory of man and the glory of these idols. In fact, Petronius, who was a Roman historian, remarked, in Athens it was easier to find a God than a man. 
The city was that full of idols, of images made of gold. It's kind of interesting today that if you go to Rome and you look at the statues today and what we think is beautiful and look at were once worshipped. They weren't simply statues. People made them and then called them gods. And it says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So Paul doesn't just become annoyed because God is offended, but rather it causes him to then proclaim or to reason with the people, proclaim the gospel. He does it both in the synagogue and the marketplace. He does it in each aspect of his life. His desire is to see disciples made wherever he's at. Synagogue, marketplace, he begins sharing it because the city is full of idols. And the glory of God is at stake. Well, the Epicurean were a group of people who focused on the pleasure. They worshipped many gods, although they were atheistic in nature. The idea was, was that by building gods of these things that they worshipped, that they could also worship the very things that the gods themselves worshipped. So if you had a god of sex, you could worship sex. If you had a god of the moon, you could worship the moon. But the Epicureans were all about pleasure. Anything that was pleasurable was the thing that they sought. Anything that allowed for uh, art and entertainment, anything that, that appealed to the flesh, the Epicureans desired and wanted. The Stoics, on the other hand, were something different. They were what we call today pantheists. They were those who believed that the reality and the deity were one and the same. Now, ironically, we actually see pantheism much throughout even the U.S. today. You hear the words like the universe told me? You know, just if we, we have enough that the universe might be great, gracious towards me, right? That's actually blending the reality and the deity. It, it puts it in place where they're one and the same, and so if we just live a self-controlled life, a self-disciplined life, we can find self-sufficiency in that life because the universe will bless me. The universe has laws and therefore will bless me. Things like the popular bestseller, The Secret, is a wonderful example of a pantheistic book. Things that lead us to believe that we are in control of our own destiny, that there is no personal God, and that the God that oversees and is Lord of all is nothing but the universe who controls us all. The truth here is, Paul goes before them and they look at him and they call him a babbler. Now, a babbler was somebody who just spoke things that they did not know of. It was somebody who was destined to say phrases, right? Um, it, it would be like somebody saying, you know, we're closer to the end than we ever were before. Right. Because we can't be any farther than where we've been, right? Uh, the... The reality is, is that he, they're saying, listen, Paul, you're foolish. You're just a man who knows nothing, who's just making up sayings to sound intelligent. Others were saying that he seemed to be a preacher of a foreign deity because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so they bring him to the Areopagus, and the, the Areopagus was a place where there was a council, and a council in Athens that actually oversaw both religious and city rituals. And this Areopagus, which debated these strange teachings, wanted to hear what Paul had to say. And Paul comes in, and they simply ask him, 
For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Paul directly answers him. In this Areopagus was a council. Historians say that in the Areopagus, if the teaching was not liked, that death could often be a consequence. These people wanted something new. They were looking for some new and, and, and new kind of idea and, and, and new teaching. I think sometimes we appeal to that within Christ's church. We have a truth that doesn't change. And it's easy to try to get caught up and because of a society that so desperately just wants new things to present something that's new. But is the gospel, the tried way, the God way, the way that God has shown us, is it still sufficient? Is it still enough? Is it right? Does it still work? Is the gospel enough? Is the church really the church when it's gathered together as a few without instruments, without a pulpit? Is it still the church? See, in many ways, the Athenians were no different than our own culture. A culture that was desperate for the new, longing for the new, desiring the new, that believed in a self-sufficiency, and that through reason they could come to their own conclusions about what life is and what life should be, and yet a desperate longing for the truth. Brian Bell puts it this way. He says, we should seek freshness, not newness, when it comes to the gospel. As the body of Christ, we need to be people who are not seekers of the new, but are seekers of the fresh. And so, as we dive into this, this text, this sermon that Paul proclaims, we're going to look at a few things together. We're going to look at God's glory being proclaimed, and then we're going to see how God's glory is revealed through a redeemed people. And so Paul comes in to the Areopagus and he walks through the Areopagus and he stands before this council and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now the Athenians were absolutely worried that they were going to offend a God that they were unaware of. And so they built a statue, an idol, to an unknown God in case they missed one of the thousands of other gods that they met. And so Paul comes in and he says, listen, I'm going to tell you about that God that you don't know about. But more importantly, you have a God that's unknown we have a God that is known. We have a God that is known. And so he comes and he begins. He begins to share about this known God. And see, the glory of God is actually the external manifestation of the beauty of his being. John Piper says it this way. He says that the glory of God is actually the public display of the infinite beauty and worth of God, the public display of the infinite worth and beauty of God. So guess what? In a culture that was desperate for beauty, that was looking for something that was new, that was seeking pleasure, that wanted to see the magnificent, where does Paul begin? Paul looks and says, listen, 
I'm going to point you right to the place that you need to see. And I'm going to show you God's glory. And so Paul proclaims God's glory to them. And so the first part that he proclaims is that God is Lord over all creation. God is Lord over all creation. In verse 24 through 25, it says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. These Stoics who were totally self-sufficient, that thought that they could reason and offer the universe something, and that they might be rewarded in kind from the universe Paul was dealing with. Listen, no. God, this unknown God, the God of creation, the God and Lord over all, he has made everything. He is the giver of life. And he does not live in temples made by man. You cannot build him the greatest thing of your day. You can't go out and try to find the greatest art form to to honor him. Because God is not honored by those temples, nor is he bound by those temples. See, God is the creator and Lord over all. See, Paul's steadfast here. He immediately points them to the sovereign lordship of God. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. This is the God that we serve. Not made by human hands, but one who has crafted the heavens. A magnificent God who holds the heavens in his hands that separated the waters from the land, that's numbered the stars and numbered the hair on every person's head. This is the God of truth. Paul's desire was to help The Epicureans and the Stoics see the beauty of God, the majesty of God, that he reigns over all things. The heavens declare that there is a creator. The heavens declare that there is an organizer. The heavens declare that there is a God who is greater than all. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. God is not in the heavens and God is not in his creation. God is the creator over his creation. It reflects his glory. It reveals his glory. Psalm 50 says this, and I I want you just to listen to this. Psalm 50, verse 7 He says, Hear, O people, I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifice do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. That's the God that we serve. And creation tells the story of the glory of God, the beauty of God, the greatness of God, the goodness of God. Every breath we have is from him. He's Lord over all. John Calvin summed it up when he said, Ever since in the creation of the universe he brought for those insignia, whereby he shows his glory to us whenever and wherever we cast our gaze. And since the glory of his power and wisdom shine more brightly above, heaven is often called his palace. Yet, 
wherever you cast your eyes. There is no spot in the universe wherein you cannot discern at least some sparks of his glory. That's the God that we serve. A magnificent God. A God that rules over all. Matt Chandler adds, everything declares that in the beginning, God made it. And this is why in Romans 1, 19 through 20, Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. That's what he was pointing to them at. Listen, look, look and see. I remember hearing a story of a person that was on an airplane traveling down from L.A. A friend was telling me, and as they talked with them, the individual was an engineer. And so as they talked, it was an opportunity just for witness, but the individual said, I, I got to ask you, if you're an engineer, as you look out over the mountains of L.A. here as we fly over them, do you feel like it's just random? And he goes, oh, no, 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 I don't believe it's random. I do believe that there's an intelligent design. And he said, so do you believe in God? And the guy said, no, I don't. I have no idea. I have no idea. And what that stands out to me is this. It stands out to a heart that, that is saying, listen, I'm acknowledging something to be true, that there is some other creator, but I don't know who it is. Paul right now is pointing them to the God creator, to the one true God. He's saying, I'm going to tell you about this unknown God that you say is unknown, and I'm going to show you the graciousness of a God who has made himself known. This God has made himself known to us. He has not left man in the lurch without answers. He's given it to them. The second thing that he proclaims about God's glory is that man is created to glorify God. Man is created to glorify God. And it says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. Now they were made from one man, that Adam, that every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. Mankind was created for the glory of God. We were made to seek him. Why were we made to seek him? Was it because we needed salvation? Was it because God just desired to redeem a broken people? A fallen people? Well, Isaiah tells us. Isaiah 43, 6-7 says this, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. We were created for his glory. We were to reveal or be the external manifestation, the external manifestation of God's goodness. Of his very being, we were to be the external manifestation of. That through us, he was going to show his glory amongst the nations. In fact, we're told that in Ezekiel 36, 20 through 23, we know that Israel was chosen as a people for God to proclaim his glory amongst the nations. And yet, in Ezekiel, something happens here. It says, but when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And the people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations when they came. 
Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. Why does God save us? He saves us to redeem a people for himself to proclaim his name amongst the nations. That changes the way that we think of our salvation, does it not? It's easy at times to think, oh, well, God needs relationship with me. He doesn't. He has perfect relationship in the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit have wonderful relationship together. He actually redeems us for his glory. And for some of us right now, we might be going, well, that's odd. That stinks. Like, I mean, why serve God if he's going to be so egocentric? But the truth is this. If God is the creator of the universe, and he is creator over all, and he is Lord over all, And God is the one who has created us for his glory, so we are created by him for him. Who else is God supposed to worship? Where else is his life? Who else is he supposed to center on? Who else's glory is he to revel in but his own, which is perfect and majestic and righteous? See, we are redeemed for his glory. We're redeemed for God's glory. And so where I go, the places I move to, it says in here, in in verse 28, it says this one little phrase, in him we live and move and have our being. Yes, yes. Yes, it is only in God that we live and move and have our being. And where we go, we are to be the very presence and reflection of God's glory amongst the nations. That we desire God's name as holy above all other names. We desire his glory to be known and seen throughout the world, throughout our community, in our families, in our workplace in our lives. If all we had to proclaim was the glory of God, would it change things? Doesn't it make the answer very different when you try to explain to somebody why a holy God needs relationship with humanity? A holy God desires relationship with humanity so that his name is glorified. He desires a people, a redeemed people for his purpose, for his glory. And it'll be his glory that moves us, that compels us, that calls us into that relationship with him and then drives us in that relationship with him. Now verse 27, this passage has something unique. It says, he says here after that we are created to seek him and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Now taken on the surface, it can look kind of contradictory. Like, I hope you get there. Maybe you'll see him. I've shown you this really big God who likes to be known and I hope you get there, right? In fact, the the literal translation of that is a groping That's actually what it means, that people would grope towards him or grope at him. Here's what it's saying. Paul's making the point that even if you wanted to know God, you can't know God apart from him. You can't know him on your own. It's not a matter of your will. It's a matter of God's grace and mercy towards you. 
See, in John 6, it says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now notice that last part of verse 27. It says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Why? He's saying, listen, if you can see the truth of God, listen up, it's God who is revealing the truth to you. He is right there with you. That's his goodness. I can't see God apart from him. I can't understand the fullness of his truth apart from him. And so when I'm seeing his truth, guess what? God is near. That's evidence and proof of the nearness of God. See, we can't find God on our own. God finds us. He's the one that draws us to him. In John 6, 63, it adds, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Oh. It stinks for guys like myself who find my strength in my self-sufficiency. God convicts me of constantly. You bonehead, you've done this over and over and over this way. Why? I used to share that I'd get ready for sermons in the morning and, excuse me, during the week and then come in the morning and I'd be rethinking through things and be like, oh, I just don't think I have this all. And Lisa was always a great voice where she'd say, has God ever left you before without? Right. Right, God has never left us before without. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Why are we saved? We're saved because of God's glory. Why are we disciple of Christ? Because of God's glory. Yesterday, as I was sitting at Starbucks and kind of finalizing, there was just a, a deep sense as God was working on this, even in my own heart, of just what it really means to be the glory of God, to be used for his purpose, that I'm not the glory of God, I'm just there to reflect it, I'm to, to be like a mirror shining back of God's goodness being displayed on humanity and the redemption of my own life. And I was at the counter at Starbucks just for a brief moment talking to the, the person that was checking me out and it just overwhelmed me in that moment. My purpose is to be God's representative of his glory right now. What an awesome honor and privilege, but what, what a great responsibility. And I walked back to where I was sitting and I had tears, that Lord, that you are the one who saved me, not for the selfish purposes that I can think it's about. God, you're so good because you, you saved me and you took away my sin. Yes, yes, yes. And we can get stuck on all the things for us that God has done without remembering that it is so that the world might know this God and that his glory is known, that he redeems a people for himself. Now, one part of that verse that's important is he says that we were created from one man, that means that the very essence of our presence with one another is to be global. We're not to see one another as other nations or as other peoples, but we are to see one another as brothers, going as if we were going amongst the nations as brothers. There should be a tie that binds us. For those of you who have children and desperately desire for your children to know and respond to the grace of God, it is the desperation that every one of us should walk in towards a world that does not know Christ.
we should feel it the same way. For those of us who have family members that we're praying for that might know Christ, the same is true throughout the world. And what does God say will be the thing that draws them to him? It will be his glory. It will be his glory. So how is God's glory then revealed through a redeemed people? Well, he says here in verse 29, that being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. It starts with a humble focus on the known glory of God. A humble focus on the known glory of God. What does that mean? It means that we don't make God into our own image. It means that the parts of God's, of, the, of Scripture, that we don't like as much, we go, you know what? It's for God's glory, not mine. This is for God's purpose, not mine. It means that we acknowledge that the God who has revealed himself has called us sinners, and that it, a result and consequence of that sin is death. And that apart from him, apart from God, the only rightful response from a holy and just God is his wrath. It's easy in our culture today to let the culture define who God is. We really do have an uneducated culture, an unbelieving culture, trying to define within the church what truthfully many and many churches, an illiterate church, just kind of goes along with. Love is tolerance, kind of, as long as it's biblical, that we operate in love with one another, but love is not tolerance. Love is forbearing, but it does not tolerate evil. The truth is this, that we need to allow God's word, his revealed word, to shape our view of who God is. Not allow our experience and desires to do that. 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18 says this, It says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, God desires to be the transformation in our life. He's the one that does it. From one degree of glory to another. We were to be image bearers of God. God said that we were bearing the image of him in the garden, and then sin entered the world through Adam, breaking that image or distorting that image through sin. But here's the thing that he says next. He says, wait, if you believe that, That's just the problem. I want to show you that the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands. He's saying, listen, God showed mercy towards you in your ignorance. The time is now. And he says, repent, because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the second way that God's glory is revealed through redeemed people is through repentance and faith in the resurrected Christ. See, God's glory is actually seen in his righteous judgment. It affirms that he is holy and just. And so sin has a rightful consequence, which is the wrath of God. Sin, which is a rebellion to God. And yet... He says, listen, 
God is a merciful God. Do you see how the gospel right now is actually revealing God's glory? It's showing both his mercy, his righteousness, his holiness, his justice. See, Christ and the resurrection actually testifies to the glory of God. It makes his glory known. It makes his mercy known. It makes his holiness known because apart from Christ, we cannot be redeemed. We cannot be in relationship with God. And he says, listen, I've given you the resurrected Christ as proof. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. The truth is this. Apart from Christ, we will suffer the consequences of God's judgment. But in Christ, we will also give an account to the Lord. And as followers of Christ, will that account be one of which I lived for your glory? Your glory was what I valued most. The holiness of your name I valued most. Romans 3, 24 through 25, tells us of the forbearance of God. It shows us of who and why and what God did. It says this, And are justified by the grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. God's mercy being displayed, God's righteousness being displayed. See, just in salvation alone, God's glory is being displayed. But in a renewed life in the resurrected Christ, when sin is put to death, and God grows us in relationship, it becomes a strange teaching to the world. People don't get it. They don't get how God can take desires that seem so natural, sin that seems so natural, and grant us his own desires. And the final way that God is revealing his glory through a redeemed people is through a persevering witness persevering witness. In verse 32 through 34, it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Arabicite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Paul's witness was not based upon the results. His witness didn't change because people affirmed it or didn't. His witness remained the same. His witness to those people, it does not say he left Athens here. He stayed amongst them, but he removed himself from that after having shared. And he left it in the sovereignty of God to determine those who would respond. As a redeemed people, are we living with a humble focus on God's word? On the known glory of God? Are we a repenting people who are living by faith in the resurrected Christ? Is our witness persevering wherever we go? See, Paul doesn't just find a way of proclaiming the gospel through some mechanism. Paul actually is among the people. In fact, Paul begins by acknowledging that they are religious people, people who are worshipers of something. As followers of Christ, 
for God's glory to be known, we have to be in the world, but not of the world. We have to be in the world, but not of the world. And we cannot fear the world more than we fear God. See, God has called us to make his glory known in all the world, for all the world. Because God has redeemed a people for himself. And if God has redeemed us for his name, then that should change the way that we walk with Christ. Because no longer is it about what I receive from walking with Jesus, but it is about God being honored and lifted up. It's about his name. It's a part of the family of God as his church. We want the name of God to be exalted above all of the names, and it will be regardless of us. But God has granted us a part in peace where we are to be living for his name, and it needs to be his name that motivates us to be all of Christ in all of life for all the world. Amen? Amen. Father, thanks for this morning that we can look at this word. We can see an example of Paul displaying his glory, displaying your glory. Lord, we acknowledge that there are times and seasons where we focus more on what we get from you and how you have let us down in ways that we think you ought to work in some different way. And Lord, we, we do ask your forgiveness for that. Father, thank you for making this about your glory. It lets us endure suffering. It gives us joy and confidence as we, we live for you where we're at and where you call us to be. Lord, it makes your gospel an urgent message. A message that is about proclaiming you, your glory, and your name. So today, may we be changed. May our motivation be different when we leave this morning about following you. Not that I just try better or do more. Not that I just want to be a better follower of Christ. But may we be motivated because of your glory. That you've invited us to walk and experience your glory at work and be reflectors of your glory wherever we go. Lord, thanks that you redeemed us through Christ. Father, for those who have yet to experience or are struggling to acknowledge the Lordship of Christ in their life, acknowledge that you have revealed yourself, you have made your ways known, even if it's different than what they want, may they humbly focus on you and see that as you are the creator over all, and as the one who's created us for your glory, that there is no greater joy in submitting ourselves to you as the ruler and savior of all. And we ask this in your name. Amen.